When you think about major trauma, most of us probably think about young guys in mangled Subarus and 40-something horse riders who've performed an unscheduled dismount onto some rather hard ground. However, there is another patient group that you would be forgiven for not thinking of. 75-year-olds who've tripped over their slippers. Silver trauma is the term used to describe trauma in older patients, and they already represent 50% of major trauma patients that are seen across the UK. With this only set to increase as our population ages, this month we're looking at silver trauma. We'll discuss the physiological changes involved with ageing, as well as some of the changes that we might need to make to our assessment and management skills, as well as discussing some of the differences in injury patterns. And to top it off, we've figured out what the worst bit is about getting older. It's... Um... What was it again? Ambulance General Broadcast. Any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. So hello and welcome to another episode of General Broadcast. My name's Josh. My name's Simon. And I'm Alex. And this week we're talking about silver trauma. Josh, why have we chosen silver trauma as a uh, as a topic this month? Yeah, well, one, it's uh, a topic that I can actually feel like I know a little bit about what I'm talking about, working in an area of the UK that's got a particularly high elderly population and working in a service that sees quite a lot of trauma. Uh, And two, because this is a really, really important subject that us as paramedics can make a huge difference in. And one that I don't think in traditional paramedic training is done in particular detail. So if you look at what the literature says, back in 2007 when the NCEPOD investigation into major trauma came out, elderly patients represented about 20% of all of the major trauma that was seen in the UK. Moving a little bit closer to uh, modern day, in 2017, Tarn reported that over 60s accounted for more than 50% of all of the major trauma patients that are seen in the UK. And there's a projected statistic that by 2030, there will be an increase of around 50% in the number of patients that are over 65 suffering major trauma and a 100% increase in those that are over 85 suffering major trauma. So clearly, we're going to see a lot more significantly injured people that fall within these age groups. I think, Josh, as, as well as the, like you just said, the increasing age in population that's going to lead to an increase in silver trauma presentations to us, I think some of the um, increase in nature may be due to the fact that we traditionally haven't associated these older patients as having major trauma and therefore we may not have been as good at collecting the data. So I think that's another reason why this statistic is is on the rise. And we put some of the TARN data in the article that actually shows the change in the amount of silver trauma from 2005 to 2014. And you can see a, a good trend developing off the top of that. And that might be because we're getting an aging population, but it also could be because we're starting to recognize silver trauma more as a, an entity in its own right. Although it's been talked about for some time, there's still data coming out and actually there hasn't been a huge amount of change implemented. Certainly in terms of what I'm aware of pre-hospitally, it's something that's discussed, but there hasn't really been any change to, um, to any of the guidelines. I think a really good place to start though would be actually what is silver trauma so let's get started 
So when we think about silver trauma, I think it's really important that we're able to define firstly, what is aging and what do we consider an older person? Aging is the process of replacing active parenchymal cells within the body. And those parenchymal cells are replaced with inactive interstitial cells. And this has an invariable effect that we lose functional reserve and get a general decline in organ function as we get older. There's no widely agreed definition of exactly what is an older person, but in a document called the Hector Manual, which you'll find linked in the article, which is a a fantastic resource when, when considering this topic, one thing that they do discuss is that there's many different definitions of old age. But from the trauma data that's available, there seems to be a very obvious change in the age outcome relationship at around age 60. So for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to assume that we're talking about trauma affecting people older than 60 years. And and that's the cutoff that Tarn seems to be using now, who are essentially the people that define trauma. So uh, yeah, that's a good cutoff to use. Josh, since uh, I think Tarn is going to come up fairly frequently in this episode, Is it worth just uh, running through exactly what TARN means? Yeah, sure. So TARN is the Trauma Audit Research Network, and they're essentially an organisation that collate all of the major trauma injury severity score data that's submitted to them by major trauma centres. So for those people that that don't know, major trauma centres, as part of their contract, are required to calculate an injury severity score for their patients, uh, for their trauma patients. So this is a score that ranges from 1 to 75, and you calculate it by taking the, the three most significantly injured areas of the body, giving them a score. Uh, you then run it into a complicated calculation that squares them, and essentially you get a number between 1 and 75. And we classify someone as being a major trauma patient or having suffered major trauma if their score is over 15. Tarn collates all of this data and make it available for people that request it and people that are doing research. So much of the major trauma data or trauma data throughout the UK, if you look in the methodology, you will see that people have requested information from Tarn. So as we've already covered, Tarn suggests that a ISS score over 15 um, indicates major trauma. We've talked about the fact that This is often from a lower mechanism of injury in older patients than it is in what we traditionally think of as high mechanism trauma or major trauma. So traditionally, we might think of major RTCs, fall from heights, stabbings, etc. However, Tarn identifies that the most common mechanism in an older person is a fall under two meters. So most of those are fall from standing. And there's a direct correlation as age changes between sort of the age range of 60 to 69 and 70 to 79, where this transition occurs. And the other causes of trauma that we that we mentioned, the things we traditionally to consider to be high trauma, actually decrease in how often they occur and falls from standing becomes the predominant factor. And this is one reason why it's really important that paramedics understand this because I pretty much can say across the UK that all of us, a regular call for us is an elderly person who's had a fall. So it's really important that we identify those patients that have had falls and potentially may have silver trauma concurring with that. 
Naturally, alongside that, there's also a change in location. We often think about trauma as being at the roadside, being in industrial places, you know, occupational injuries or RTCs in the middle of motorways and dual carriageways or country roads where cars have rolled over. But actually, again, around the 70 to 79 mark, there is a rapid flip between outdoors to indoors being the primary area where people get injured so again this kind of shows that silver trauma occurs in people that maybe aren't going out as much they probably drive less compared to other generations but spend increasingly more time in their own residence often due to increase in frailty so again when compared to traditional teaching for pre-hospital clinicians on major trauma it's not unreasonable to suggest that we may not consider major trauma in these older patients because of the lower risk environment that we find our patients in. Unfortunately, because of this reduced recognition of silver trauma and older patients, it means that we don't activate trauma bypass as much as we should do. TARN also show that with increasing age, the pre-hospital activation of the major trauma bypass tool major trauma pre-alerts and in-hospital trauma team activations as a percentage in confirmed major trauma patients, so those with an ISS over 15, all decreases as the patient gets older. And the statistics in the age ranges of 80 to 89 and 90 plus ranges are actually quite concerning. It's for this reason why we need to think about why this is occurring and find ways to improve this. Firstly, by educating ourselves around silver trauma. So congratulations, you're already doing that part by listening to this podcast. Secondly, by identifying our bias towards assessment of older persons who have experienced uh, what we would originally consider to be a lower mechanism of injury trauma and the fact that this demographic can still result in significant injury. And finally, by understanding that older persons do not always present in the same way as our traditional teaching of trauma patients. And therefore, we need to be wary of tools such as the pre-hospital major trauma bypass tool and have a lower threshold in our clinical acumen when considering variations in anatomy and physiology and response to trauma and when to bypass to a major trauma centre. Yeah, there's a quote that I really like actually from the Hector Manual, uh, which is that standard abnormal parameters of physiology that are used to define states of shock and cardiorespiratory distress are not always applicable to the elderly patient. And I think that's the that's the key point when you're thinking about silver trauma, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the reasoning that this is so important is because there's a direct correlation with increasing age and worsening positive outcome and increasing mortality levels in older trauma patients. So we've just talked about that physiology isn't always accurate in older patients. So Alex has just talked about these physiological differences that occur in ageing. So Josh, do you want to talk us through what uh, is different about the physiology of an older person and how that's related to trauma? I think it's I think it's really important for us to not just understand the modifications and the changes that we might need to make to our management and assessments, which we'll come on to talk about in a minute, but to understand why that's the case and to to understand why elderly patients have these differences in trauma that we've just been discussing. And to do that, we have to be clear that every system in the body is affected by aging and everything has a decline in function over time as we age. So let's start with the skin. 
As we age, the skin becomes thinner, drier and less elastic. And this is most obvious as wrinkling, the most visible sign of aging. But reduction in the amount of elastin and collagen in the skin makes it more fragile and liable to tears. When we're younger, our skin is more taut, meaning that any bleeding is able to tamponade off quite easily, forming small localised bruises. However, older people who have more laxity in their skin and larger dermal layers with small subcutaneous layers of fat means that very little pressure is required to start bleeding under the skin and small slow bleeds can often go unnoticed going on to produce large hematomas. Most people will be familiar with osteoporosis and this is where bone reabsorption exceeds the new bone production and as a result we get a loss of bone mass and we're more susceptible to fracturing a bone. As we age, we get stiffening of joints and ligaments. This means that there's less flex and our joints and our limbs are more rigid. This is particularly notable in the cervical spine. And this lack of flex, this increased rigidity, means that if we fall or we come up against a force, we're less likely to give, we're less likely to absorb that external force. And the energy from that impact is at increased risk of seriously hurting us. Older patients' airways are different to younger patients, so the musculature of the upper airway begins to weaken with age. This means that when patients become obtunded or reduce levels of consciousness, their tongue and soft tissues in the oropharynx are more likely to cause an obstruction or restrict airflow. Older patients can often have false teeth or dentures that, one, can cause an airway obstruction if they're unnoticed, but two, if removed, change the facial structure that make it quite hard when we come on to use something like a BVM or an OPA. Aging also affects our respiratory system. We get a loss in flexibility and compliance in the chest, and we lose muscle mass in the inspiratory muscles, leading to as much as a 50% decrease in vital capacity by age 75. Older patients also suffer alveolar collapse, particularly basal atelectasis, as a result of this decreased vital capacity. So we get sections of the lungs that don't ventilate normally and don't partake in gas exchange as we would expect them to. And we get an increased likelihood of respiratory pathologies such as COPD, all working to reduce our functional residual capacity. Aging also affects the chemoreceptors that are in our aortic arch that are responsible for sensing changes in CO2 and O2 in the blood. These get less sensitive as we age, and as a result, we've got a worsened central response to hypoxia and hypercapnia, so we're less able to compensate if we start to suffer from ventilatory failure. So moving on to the cardiovascular system, it's quite obvious that as we get older, our atherosclerosis risk increases and we can suffer partial or complete obstruction of vessels, meaning that organs are less able to cope with stress as they've got a reduced blood flow. Our myocardium is reshaped, so myocytes are replaced with collagen and fat cells, meaning the heart muscle is less contractile. The walls are stiff and less able to stretch, meaning that our ability to respond to increased requirements for blood flow from the body are lessened. As I've just said, our vascular receptors are negatively affected. So I've just talked about our chemoreceptors, but our baroreceptors are negatively affected as well. They become less sensitive to changes in circulatory volume, and as a result, they're less able to pick up changes and respond to them appropriately. So essentially, that translates to the fact that if we're hemorrhaging, if we're losing circulatory volume, not only are we less able to compensate to that by increasing heart rate and increasing blood pressure, but our body is less able to detect the fact that we're losing circulatory volume. 
So we're also at increased risk of arrhythmias. So the sinoatrial node, which is the pacemaker for the heart, has a 90% decrease in the number of cells within it by age 75. Hence the increased risk of AF as we get older. If we develop AF, as many of our silver trauma patients will have, we lose part of their performance that's termed atrial kick, which results in a 20 to 30% loss in our stroke volume. The electrical system further down the heart is also affected, so the AV node sees a decrease in cells. The other electrical pathways develop fibrosis and fatty deposits along them, meaning there's an increased risk of aberrant conductions, particularly in cases of stress. And finally, in cardiovascular system, the stiffening of the valves in the heart. We become reliant on higher pressures and high blood pressure to overcome these, and as a result, small drops in blood pressure can result in marked reductions in cardiac filling and cardiac output. Oh, I need to give my uh, voice a little bit of a rest. Alex, do you want to talk about the changes that happen to the central nervous system? There's a lot of neurological changes that happen as as we get older. There's a slowing of both the motor and the sensory neuronal networks. And that means that we have slower response times. So we're less able to protect ourselves and move out of the way. So when experiencing something like a fall, the reduced reaction times mean that we're less likely to have a foosh or a fall onto an outstretched hand and are going to be less able to prevent falls from from standing height onto the floor. Another factor which affects the neurological system as a result of aging is that the brain shrinks. We get cerebral atrophy and there's a loss of approximately 10 to 20% of its mass by age 80. That's a problem because older brains have more space around them due to the atrophy and the subdural veins which connect to the brain are held in a more taut position so any injury to the head is going to result in shear forces being applied to those veins that can lead to a a greater risk of tearing and extradural hemorrhage yeah and that increased space in the older person's skull means that it can be really hard or it can be late for hard neurological signs of that extradural hemorrhage to present to us so this is why you get that classic history of a waxing waning gcs or an immediate loss of consciousness and then an improvement in level of consciousness uh, in in these patients because you've got that initial insult to to the brain and then neurological signs may not develop until intracranial pressure begins to increase uh, and that can take a little while because they've got more space than a younger person would have so that's the features of normal aging but obviously as we get older, we can be at increased risk of developing significant comorbidities. So Alex, do you want to talk to us a little bit about those and and how we might factor those into our, our approach towards these patients? Of course, yeah. Comorbidity is a term which we use a lot. And I think in this context, it's useful to actually define exactly what we mean by that. Comorbidity is a result of genetics and habits or behaviours, which over a lifetime, lead to predispositions towards certain illnesses and deteriorating function. So those comorbidities can have association with higher degrees of mortality. A 2013 study by Fox et al. showed that a higher number of comorbidities significantly is associated with an increase in mortality and there's a good probability value to support that. And the type of things that we're talking about with comorbidities, we're not going to go too much in depth into the specific conditions. But we're talking about things like cardiovascular disease, chronic cardiac failure, hepatic or renal disease, active cancers that are receiving treatment or uh, or are ongoing, cerebral atrophy for the reasons that we've, we've talked about previously, and COPD. 
So when thinking about comorbidities, a good rule of thumb is that all elderly patients who are being admitted to hospital should have a formal review of their past medical history and drug history during the initial stages of resuscitation or treatment. Part of that is going to take place in hospital, but I think it's also worth bearing in mind that we can play a key role in that process in identifying early comorbidities that may be present when we're considering decision making, which we which we'll talk about a little bit later, but also making sure that we have an awareness of medicines and past medical history, especially if we're talking to family members or other people who know the patient. Another condition which I am going to talk a little bit more about because I think it's something which we are less comfortable with or less familiar with, certainly in the pre-hospital context, is delirium. Delirium is a common cause of mobility and mortality for any elderly patient who's admitted to hospital, and it affects around 20 to 80% of patients, according to the Geriatric Medicine Research Collaborative. Delirium is an issue because it can increase mortality by 2 to 5% and it can lead to longer stays in hospital. It makes discharge more complex, results in more discharges into care, and it also has an increase in negative hospital outcomes. God, have you got this stuff written on paper? Yeah, I know, mate. I know. Retro. I, was, I know. I say retro, aren't I? Was that, was that, that was turning paper out? Yeah, Jesus, it was, mate. Yeah. Man. In a second, if you listen very carefully, you'll hear his, his quill scratching away. <laughs> can, like, you, I, can you cut that out, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have I, have, have I told you my Airwick story? <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's because uh, Alex is approaching being in the silver trauma category himself that he's still writing on paper, I think. <laughs> that's, that's why I take this subject so seriously, because it's going to directly affect me. <laughs> so what is delirium? Delirium is a neuropsychiatric syndrome which causes fluctuating consciousness and then can lead to hyperactive or hypoactive states and can be due to almost any underlying condition. But there are a few things which greatly increase the risk of a patient developing delirium. So a really good mnemonic to, uh, to, to have when considering a patient who could potentially develop delirium is pinch me. And that is pain, infection, constipation, hydration and medication. If you're one of our colleagues who work in hospital, a good baseline would be that all elderly patients with baseline changes to their normal patterns of behaviour should have a top-to-toe assessment and consideration of potential causes of delirium. And when we think about it in the pre-hospital context, that's not always going to be entirely possible, but it is really important that we have an awareness of delirium awareness of the causes and a consideration of things such as hydration status, especially when considering the prolonged ambulance and offload weights and weights in A&E. And that can have a marked increase on dehydration because if the patient is sat on an A&E trolley or in the back of an ambulance for a prolonged period of time without sufficient hydration, that is going to lead potentially to negative outcomes. So overall, delirium is strongly associated with increased frailty, but as people become more frail, it's noted that they are less likely to be recognised as suffering from delirium. So when considering the elderly patient, and to be quite honest, this is all elderly patients that are being admitted to hospital, not just trauma patients, but it is particularly relevant in, in silver trauma, they should all have a consideration for delirium, especially with a, an increased uh, clinical frailty score. 
And one of the things that we should consider is medications, which can have a fairly significant impact on the patient outcome. Isn't that right, Simon? Yeah, so polypharmacy is really common in older populations, especially, as you quite rightly said, due to increasing comorbidities. And the more medicines a patient takes, the more likely they are to interact both with each other, but also with the physiological response to trauma and the pathophysiological effects of traumatic injuries. So we've kind of already covered that you've got physiological changes normally, we've then got comorbidities on top of that, and now we're going to add all of these medications on top of that to make things even worse. So it's really important to consider uh, the effects of medications in our older trauma patients. Some of the common things we want to think about are beta blockers. These are used for a variety of reasons, such as hypertension, angina management, arrhythmia management, and their beta-1 effects lead to a reduced heart rate which can both restrict compensatory mechanisms of tachycardia and therefore the patient's response to shock, but also in the same token, mask that tachycardia in relation to hypervolemia. And this makes heart rate an unreliable indicator of hypervolemic shock. So we need careful assessment for occult injury in patients who are taking beta blockers. And there needs to be a low threshold for pre-hospital teams and trauma teams to consider injuries that may have caused bleeding that just aren't showing in the physiology. So in hospital, I would definitely have a lower threshold for ordering a pan-trauma CT in an older person who suffers with trauma than I would in a stable younger person when looking at physiology. When talking about hypovolemia and bleeding, we need to talk about anticoagulation. Anticoagulants like warfarin and novel or direct oral anticoagulants known as the NOAX or DOAX, are commonly prescribed in the elderly to manage the risk of clotting in conditions such as ischemic stroke or to prevent stroke in patients with AF and in heart valve replacement. An unfortunate complication of this is then unwanted increased bleeding in those who suffer with trauma. Any patient on anticoagulant medications can have occult bleeding even in relatively minor trauma. Warfarin inhibits vitamin K-dependent synthesis of some clotting factors and can be reversed by using vitamin K IV, fresh frozen plasma and prothrombin complex concentrates such as octoplex, normally reserved for in-hospital management. DOACs such as rivaroxaban are direct factor 10A inhibitors and they can be a little bit more challenging to reverse but there are various medications that are starting to come out that, that can be used to reverse those. One of the most common risks of anticoagulation that pre clinicians will be familiar with is the risk of bleeding in the head from any patient who's had a head injury who is also anticoagulated. This is why CT scanning is indicated in those who've suffered from even relatively minor head and facial trauma, as when we combine the factors we discussed earlier in the physiology, such as the atrophy of the brain, and then we add in the risk of increased bleeding from medication, this massively heightens the risk. Hence why the NICE guidelines for head injury support the use of CT scanning in anyone who with a head injury who's anticoagulated. As well as head trauma, our primary survey and subsequent imaging should help us identify other bleeding areas that can lead to hypovolemic shock, including chest trauma, abdomen trauma and pelvic injuries, as well as long bone fractures where hemorrhage is a risk.
So have a low threshold for any patient who is at risk of bleeding from trauma who's also anticoagulated, as they may not always show those typical responses we talked about earlier, especially if they're on beta blockers also. We then need to think about steroids. So this is another common medication that's prescribed in elderly patients for inflammatory and immunosuppressive benefits. However, steroids also suppress the body's response to both illness and injury and further might bring down our response to trauma, making a patient that could be quite unwell look like they're seemingly okay. A further adverse side effect of steroids when taken for a long time is both skin thinning and the development of osteoporosis. Josh has already talked about the fact that osteoporosis thins bones and when you add steroids into this, it it progresses this even faster. Skin thinning in elderly patients makes them more susceptible than younger individuals to traumatic injuries. It also delays healing and can result in the development of infection. Furthermore, we need to think about pressure sores. And pressure sores can occur in relatively quick time frames in older patients. So we need to be really aware of this in our choice of immobilization devices. A lot of ambulance services use scoop stretches, which are obviously really good for time-critical patients, but at the same time, they're quite a hard surface, and leaving patients on those for a prolonged period of time can make them more prone to developing pressure sores, especially if they're on steroid medications in the long term. A better choice might be something like a vacuum mattress or a position of comfort with blocks and tape, and then when we can clear their C-spine as quick as possible so that we can remove this immobilization. We also need to think about how we might make this situation even more complex by the medications that we might give in trauma. So oxygen is standard treatment for a trauma patient and is is vital. But patients at risk of type 2 respiratory failure, e.g. those with COPD, may need to have their oxygen titrated in response to their COPD. We might consider benzodiazepines for managing combativeness or seizures. The problem with this is it can cause unwanted effects such as hypotension, respiratory or CNS depression. CNS depression can affect how we assess the neurological component of our disability exam in the primary survey. It can reduce conscious levels and affect pupillary response. And this makes it harder to differentiate what is a neurological deterioration from a condition such as the head injury or from the benzodiazepine administration itself. Likewise, morphine and opiates have a similar effect on the CNS, so we need to consider this when administering morphine for analgesia. Morphine acts on various receptors but has an affinity for mu receptors, which provides the analgesic effect we want when managing trauma patients. However, again, it also has other negative effects, including respiratory depression, nausea and vomiting, and reduced GI motility. In the trauma patient, this can have consequences that we need to consider because it can cause airway complications in the form of vomiting, especially in patients that are led flat and might be immobilized. In relation to breathing and chest wall injury, morphine can result in respiratory depression, reducing an already struggling respiratory effort and result in worsening ventilation and or hypoxia and hypercapnia. However, in contrast, relieving that pain might actually be beneficial and improve respiratory effort if there's a chest wall injury that is preventing adequate ventilation. So we need to apply some clinical judgment. Uh, Morphine can also cause hypotension, which is an unwanted effect of lowering blood pressure further in the shocked hypovolemic trauma patient. 
So that's an overview of how medications can affect the trauma patient. So now we need to start thinking about our assessment and how that differs in the older trauma patient. So let's start, as always, with a little bit of history. As well as establishing the mechanism of injury for the trauma itself, pre-hospital clinicians need to identify whether a medical event resulted in the trauma. So we need to ask about symptoms that may have predisposed patients to the medical cause, such as prior dizziness, vertigo, presyncope symptoms, chest pain, shortness of breath, and as Alex said earlier, the presence of delirium. We might want to look for infection or weakness from stroke. And these are just common examples of things that can cause patients to collapse or experience trauma as a result. Many experienced pre-hospital clinicians, and I'm sure you guys will agree with me, will have attended patients who have crashed a car due to a collapse at the wheel or of their fall has actually turned out to be a syncopal episode. No, I've definitely been to one or two of those. Yeah, and I think it's important to bear in mind that it's often not an either-or situation. So you might be going to one of these patients that has had a medical event. They have had a cardiac arrest or an MI behind the wheel, and that's the cause of the crash. But they also have an element of trauma or polytrauma going on. So they're, they're not mutually exclusive. But yeah, that's an important thing, particularly in this age group, that we need to factor in. Yeah, I fully agree. So we just need to add a little bit of medical assessment into into our trauma patients. And, you know, we're treating the patient with injuries as opposed to injuries on a patient. Won't go too much more into history because we've talked a lot about histories in other podcasts and things. So should we move on then to the actual physical exam in the primary survey? This is a trauma patient primarily. We, we've obviously got the medical caveats, but uh, this is a trauma patient. So we're going to be assessing this patient using the primary survey. Now, we're not going to teach people to suck eggs because if there's anything that pre-hospitalists can do, it's a cracking primary survey. I guess the only thing to emphasise is that we need to be following a structure. What we're going to do then is talk about some of the modifications to the assessment or the treatments that often go along with that stage of the primary survey in this older trauma patient group. At the top of every primary survey is seen safety, and that is often followed in some format by c-spine considerations so alex do you want to talk to us a little bit about the c-spine in these older patients so along with the bone density and osteoporotic changes that we've already spoken about something else that's worth considering in the context of trauma especially if you're considering a mobilization is that there may well be the presence of kyphosis or lordosis or possibly even scoliosis now, kyphosis is a forward curvature of the spine along the sagittal plane, that is anterior-posterior, so the, the patient will be curved forward. Lordosis is a backwards curvature along the sagittal plane, and scoliosis is curvature along the frontal plane, so side to side, essentially. The normal spine has some degree of kyphosis in the thoracic spine and some lordosis in the cervical and lumbar spine. However, it is something that can be exacerbated due to a variety of different conditions. The natural history of kyphosis isn't well understood, but increases in spinal curvature in the thoracic spine is seen in patients who suffer from kyphosis starting at around age 40. And it affects around 20 to 40% of adults aged 60 or over. As I've already mentioned, there are many different factors which can contribute, but the predominant causes are postural, congenital, and something called Schuerman disease, which is juvenile kyphosis, which obviously I'm not going to be talking about in this context. But postural kyphosis starts generally in adolescence and affects more women than it does men. 
the initial slouching of the posture increases the forward curvature of the spine and that stretches the extensor muscles of the back and the posterior ligaments of the spine. And over time that causes weakening. When that person gets older and they suffer from decreased muscle integrity, that contributes further to poor posture and that causes an increased compressive load on the thoracolumbar spine and can sometimes cause anterior wedge fractures. So the presence of excessive curvature of the spine is going to present an issue when we come to consider immobilization, particularly in the context of major trauma. When immobilizing a patient who has got kyphosis or scoliosis, we're going to have to consider alternative methods of immobilization because traditional methods are not going to be well tolerated. They're not going to be as effective and essentially it's just not really going to work. So we're going to have to be a little bit creative and it's going to be very specific to the patient and the degree of curvature of the spine in terms of how we actually immobilize these people. So there's not really a hard and fast guideline that we can give you on exactly how to immobilize a patient who's got scoliosis or kyphosis or a combination of both. But it is something that's going to use a degree of problem solving and a degree of clinical judgment. And obviously, we're, we're probably not going to be considering instigating mobilization at this stage of our assessment. But as we're talking about C-spine and C-spine considerations, let's let's talk about it now. So I think there's a real danger with the way that C-spine management is taught in people's attitudes and trusts attitudes to an extent being that c-spine immobilization is a package it's triple immobilization either on a scoop or on a vac mat and to immobilize somebody you must deliver that package and that is the black and white rule and and certainly when i was a student and as, as an nqp i felt very uncomfortable not applying that package of immobilization as strictly as it's written in, in most immobilization policies but as my practice has gone on, I think the, the key thing to bear in mind, and for me now my focus when, when I'm thinking about mobilizing these patients, is doing exactly that. The purpose of what we're doing is to limit movement and to keep the C-spine and the rest of the spine as still and in line as possible or as in natural alignment as possible to limit further injury. And as you've just so wonderfully described, Alex, these patients often don't have a normal spine that we're used to that that these protocols were developed for and so we need to be a little bit thoughtful about how we do that and that might be particularly in a gcs 15 patient i think we can all agree they can mostly immobilize their own c-spine uh, and and spinal column but that also might be keeping them on a bed with some soft stuff around them some pillows or some blankets to just reinforce keeping their head still and uh, and just being a little bit more gentle with uh, with immobilization because if we strap someone to a hard board as i have definitely seen done and actually wrestled patients onto hard boards to instill this package of immobilization we we really aren't doing what we set out to do no i com i completely agree and i think that's a really good point about using blankets and and similar to 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 keep the patient comfortable because the more pa the more comfortable the patient is the less likely they are going to be to want to move particularly if a patient has got a degree of confusion or dementia if they're uncomfortable they are going to be very inclined to move around and make the process of reducing potential spinal movement even more difficult 
I'd agree with both of you, and it's exactly what we do in hospital. Um, if the patient is like agitated or distressed, sometimes it's better just to remove the immobilization. And if they will lie still and keep themselves safer because they're not distressed by having blocks and collars and boards and tapes and straps and whatever holding them down, actually sometimes you get less movement. So I think sometimes uh, a less is more kind of approach thinking about body position and not trying to flatten someone out onto a onto a board and padding that out or using a vacuum mattress that can mold to them is really good practice there's obviously been a lot of evidence recently about self-extrication i don't see why you couldn't use that in an elderly person as long as they're capable of doing that you know and, and again less spinal motion restriction is is the aim as opposed to immobilization i think is a is the right way forward and and the other thing that we need to factor in is that kyphosis not only has an effect clearly on the spine and the spinal column, but it has an effect on your vital capacity in your chest. So because particularly in severe kyphosis, you can have a limitation to your vital capacity, the actual limitation to the amount of uh, lung you're able to use in your inspiratory capacity. So lots of these patients aren't going to tolerate lying down on a flat board because that's that's not what their body is telling them to do they do need to be sat up partially or, or, or semi-recumbent and in in insisting that they lie flat if they have got a, an underlying chest injury or, or respiratory compromise to be honest even if they haven't we're potentially going to make them physiologically worse by insisting they do something that is unnatural for their body so we we absolutely have to think outside the box in trying to immobilize these patients and i guess for me that the questions to ask yourself that are really helpful with that is what are you trying to achieve and is what you're doing keeping the patient still comfortable and safe and and often like you said on, on, on a bed with some blanket rolls taped to the stretcher is what's going to happen in hospital but is also absolutely suitable for the road transfer into hospital I suppose the, the final thing we could think about with regards to the C-spine is whether we need to immobilise at all. So clearing the C-spine in an older person is is kind of a, a hot topic of its own right. My thoughts on this, and I'd be interested to hear your, your guys' practice as well, is the, the trust I used to work for used the Canadian C-spine rule, which is obviously also advocated by NICE, but you can't apply that to people over the age of 65. So in terms of this podcast, it kind of rules out the population that we're talking about. So CCR would say that over 65 is increased risk and requires immobilization. The other thing we can think about, though, is the nexus guidelines in order to clear clinically clear a C-spine. So Nexus was a study conducted in the US. It's got really, really good application and has really good sensitivity for detecting patients that need immobilization or need imaging and basically looks at the presence of focal neurological deficit whether there's any midline spinal tenderness whether there's any altered level of consciousness whether there's any intoxication or a distracting injury so if you answer yes to any of those then immobilization is required but if you can answer no to all of them then you can clinically clear the c-spine now the problem is, is that although the original Nexus study doesn't specify an age, and actually I think the oldest participant in it might have been 101 from the original paper, there has been research since which will 
put a link to in the show notes uh, by Pakin in 2017 that kind of concluded that in adult blunt trauma populations looking at older patients that the nexus criteria is much less sensitive to exclude a cervical spine fracture and therefore they suggest that we don't use it and that we use imaging. So I kind of guess this leaves us in this murky world of kind of clinical acumen and clinical judgment as to when we clear a c-spine i know what i do do you, do either of you guys want to kind of say what, what what you do and what your thoughts are on it and then i'll i'll kind of cover what what i do the discussion that you've just had about nexus and canadian c-spine is is pretty endemic of really the problem when when we're looking at silver trauma in that those guidelines don't really consider the over 65 population not not in depth and i think the thing to take away as as you know the, the main takeaway point from this podcast that we're hoping to get across as i said before is to have that lower threshold of suspicion my personal approach to this and i have to say this this may be controversial but this is uh this is generally my approach to um to immobilization i use the canadian c-spine and or nexus rules as a guide to whether a patient needs imaging which obviously as as we all know is is really what they're intended for and i want the patient to reduce spinal movement i don't want the patient to be strapped to something uncomfortable because that's what a book tells me i should do if that makes sense i i will do whatever i can to keep the patient comfortable and reduce their spinal movement if that means full traditional immobilization then that's what i'll do if we need to use a creative solution to achieve the same outcome then i will do whatever that takes which which i think is exactly what we need to do you know we need to uh you know a patient specific approach and to tailor our practice to to manage patients as individuals so i I quite agree with that josh when when do you immobilize or when would you not immobilize a, a neck in an older person I was hoping you weren't going to ask me. I was hoping I could just fade into the shadows there and avoid uh, answering that. Um, It's really typical. That's that's such a typical, (laughs) such a typical CCP thing. Get back in your helicopter. My work here is done. (laughs) Oh, guys, I I don't think this one's for me. I think you can deal. uh, You can deal with this one. I don't think this one's for us. Hems turn up. Spinal mobilization (laughs) is not required, and then leave us to take the take the flat from the ACP that has a go at them, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. My work here is done but you haven't done anything yeah no so i i think it i think it is quite difficult and and it is very patient specific uh, i always try and remind myself that ccr and nexus are uh, significant c-spine rule out criteria so what they aren't saying is the patient doesn't have a fracture of some kind what, what, what the tool is there for is to clinically aid exclusion of a clinically significant c-spine injury uh, where there's likely cord involvement or, or risk of cord involvement we, we we know in these silver trauma patients one of the top missed injuries is a cervical spinal fracture um, that's one of the top things that, that are missed in these patients so i do have a very low threshold for doing some form of spinal immobilization but exactly when and when i don't do that is is entirely patient specific something else worth bearing in mind is is the the lower level of uh, 
energy that's actually required to cause those spinal fractures as well in in this age population um when i worked in hospital i'm aware of a case where a patient went over a bed rail and ended up with an odontoid pe- an unstable odontoid peg fracture from from a fall of you know a, a few feet which in a in a much younger person probably would not have sustained such a significant injury yeah, well, it, it's falls from standing, isn't it? It's falls from standing are a major trauma criteria potential in this group of patients because we know that's one of the top mechanisms of injury that give them major trauma or that qualify them as a major trauma patient. So, yeah, we, we kind of have to get this convention of what is and what isn't a significant mechanism of injury to, to justify spinal injury in this group of patients out, out of our, uh, out of our conventional working what what do you do simon because uh, i'm aware alex and i have successfully avoided answering that question with any concrete answers <laughs> so uh, go on t- give it give us the absolute black and white answer yeah <laughs> i work in hospitals so i just get a ct scan <laughs> no <laughs> um uh, <laughs> either way if the crew have brought them in you say you didn't need to immobilize them and take it off and if they haven't you go why aren't they immobilized yeah yeah and and then once i put them through the scanner i i walk back in with my you know head held high and go i told you that was a fracture i told you that wasn't a fracture yeah it's, um, the, it's the doctor's abc approach isn't no. it arrive blame criticize depart so um <laughs> All all jokes aside, if I go to a patient who's over the age of 65, I'm obviously going to be aware of the patient with head and facial injuries. But as you quite rightly said there, Josh, we we need to emphasize that low mechanism of injury can cause or more risk to see spine fractures in the elderly. So my process is a combination of using Nexus a little bit, but I am going to palpate the necks if a patient is uh, gcs of 15 and doesn't have any things like delirium or dementia or significant distracting injury then i will palpate their neck i might test some uh, range of motion and as long as that's all okay we're obviously going to look for you know neurology we might assess you know power and tone and sensory deficits in the limbs and as long as all that's fine i might clinically clear the c-spine however if i'm going to do a pan trauma anyway because i feel that the silver trauma is worthy of a pan ct then actually I'm just going to immobilize the patient. So, And I apply that the same principle pre-hospitally, that if I feel that the patient is going to get a pan trauma CT because the mechanism, which again is lower, then I would immobilize or best I can protect the C-spine of these patients and then go from there. So again, unfortunately, it's not very um, clinical. It's not validated. It's just my own clinical judgment and my experience of managing patients. There's been patients that I've got right and there's been patients that I've got wrong. There's been patients that I've scanned that don't have injuries, which is fine. And there's been patients that I've not scanned initially and then scanned later because I've become worried about them and they've turned out to have fractures. So you know, I think this is one of those things where until we get a proper validated tool and, 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 you know, we look at this more, it's a little bit of clinical judgment. So I'm interested to know your thoughts on this, the Hector manual that we've been referencing throughout the, the, the podcast would suggest there's a bit of a pearl of wisdom that if you're doing a CT head, you should also do a CT neck. So does that mean any patient that we're taking in to have a CT head should be immobilized? That's including those fallen hit their head, they're warfarinized, still walking around, do they need to be immobilized? So yeah, I, I read that comment too. And um I quite like it as a comment. I, I I have done that in my practice before that I've 
just I'm doing a CG head, so in the elderly, I'll just add in a neck. However, it's not something I always do. You know, if a patient is just warfarinized and has come in with a minor head injury, um, then no, admittedly, I will assess them clinically. And if they have no neck pain, they're moving around and they've walked into my department from being at home. No, I don't add the neck in unless I've got clinical suspicion. But um, I do know people that always add the neck on top of their head CT, but it's not something I do. I, I still want clinical suspicion of, of a neck injury. But it's something I might might look at because it might be a, a worthwhile little pearl. Well, now we've spent 25 minutes deciding whether or not to immobilise this patient. Shall we see if they've got an obstructed airway? <laughs> So yeah, next, obviously at that stage in the primary survey, it would be consider C-spine. And these are some of the things that you might want to consider, but uh, the general rule of thumb is if you're unsure, treat as if there is one. Uh, So take immobilization precautions or manual inline stabilization and go through the rest of your assessments until you get to a point where you can appropriately decide whether or not to remove the immobilization for your patient. So let's talk a little bit about airway. Catastrophic hemorrhage kind of takes care of itself, and this isn't a catastrophic hemorrhage podcast. But airway in these patients can be slightly different, and a large proportion of this comes from presence or absence of false teeth, or whether the patient's wearing dentures. So as I've said before, if, if a patient does have false teeth in and they're poorly secured, as quite often they are, that can present an imminent airway risk, particularly if the patient is partially obtunded or has a sudden loss of consciousness. So you may want to factor that in and vocalize that to the team if you are allowing them to keep their teeth in, uh, that they do have false teeth. Because I've definitely been caught out by a sudden deteriorating patient who I've then had to get some McGill's to remove some dentures that drop to the back of their back of their throat. The issue with taking the dentures out is it generally changes the, sh- the bony structure of the face. So we are reliant on the hard structures of the teeth and the gums in patients when using a BVM to prevent the lips from sinking back into the mouth and providing the face structure with which to form a seal. And so quite often in these patients, particularly if they're cachectic or, or very, very small in stature anyway, we, we can cause some issues if we need to bag valve mask ventilate these patients. And likewise, if we're inserting an OPA, when we're performing our C-grip with the BVM, we can sometimes struggle to get a good seat on the OPA because of the lack of teeth to hold it in the mouth. So these are some things to think about and potentially have to modify the way that we do things. Uh, you might have a very low threshold for two-handed BVM technique in these patients, or if they've got a very narrow face and you're struggling to get a seal, sometimes rotating the mask 180 degrees can sometimes improve it, particularly if they've got a very narrow face. The other thing to bear in mind is with the reduced flexibility and motility that these patients have as we get older, there's reduced laxity in the jaw, there's reduced laxity in the neck, and that can make it quite difficult to perform a head tilt chin lift. So again, we may need a low threshold for performing a two-handed technique on these patients. So one person can really focus on holding that mask and getting a good seal. It's not just limited to the OPAs and the BVM, however. 
If we're considering an eye gel in these patients, we may need to use a smaller size than we might otherwise predict because of the weakened musculature of the upper airway. Uh, so just bear that in mind. We're very, very quick to reach for a size 4A eye gel in, in an adult, but you may get a better seal with the size 3 or something of that nature. And again, all of that is going to cause slight issues if we're thinking about intubating these patients. So Again, if they're kyphosed, if they've got quite a rigid neck, we might need to think about taking an extra couple of seconds just to really optimise that view that we're likely to get. It might mean ramping the entirety of the patient up to improve our view. So that's airway. Alex, do you want to talk to us about breathing? In the context of silver trauma and uh, the population over 65, I think the main thing that we're going to be looking for really is injury to the chest wall particularly rib fractures trauma to the thorax represents the second most common site for injury in the over 65 population and that's based on a, a 2020 study which showed that approximately 10 percent of major trauma patients have injury to the thorax Mortality from rib fracture is actually relatively high in the over 65 age group it's, it's around 10 percent and that Morbidity and mortality derives primarily from pain-induced hypoventilation, which leads to pneumonia and to respiratory failure. And as Josh mentioned earlier, there is also loss of muscle mass and other lung changes which make older people more susceptible to these problems. So when considering chest wall injury and rib fractures in particular, the main goal of care is to ensure adequate analgesia. Obviously, in terms of the initial presentation of trauma, we need to make sure that we are looking for things like flail chest, uh, significant chest injury that's going to need further management on scene or potentially um, a pre-hospital anesthesia. In terms of less significant chest injuries, the main goal of care is going to be adequate analgesia. That allows respiratory rehab, it allows proper breathing to take place and it prevents pulmonary complications another aspect to consider is the presence or the potential presence of copd as simon alluded to earlier so we need to think about how we're using oxygen in these patients traditionally high flow oxygen for all trauma patients or all major trauma patients that could potentially lead to reduced consciousness and type 2 respiratory failure in a patient who is a CO2 retainer. So it's something to, to, to bear in mind when considering this age group. The current role of surgical fixation is unclear because the older adults are an underrepresented population, which is a, a common theme in, in all of this, really. So we're not really sure what role surgical fixation has in terms of rib fractures or chest wall injury. But one thing I did think was was interesting is that modern regional anesthesia techniques might alleviate the burden of systemic opiate side effects because one thing, obviously we're talking about sufficient analgesia, but one thing that we do have to consider as Simon talked about earlier is the effect that we're going to have. If we overload this patient with morphine, we're going to have potential effects down the road in terms of not just CNS depression, but also the effect that it may have on their hospital stay in terms of delirium and constipation, other problems like that. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a balance really. The Hector manual is quite clear about 
you know, giving morphine cautiously. I, I always thought when, when people say cautiously, it means, oh, be wary of giving it. And I don't think that's what we're trying to say. I think what we're trying to say is just give it carefully is probably a better way to, to, to word it. So my personal practice is just to titrate it slowly, giving it a kind of a milligram a minute and just reassessing regularly and making sure we don't cause our patient to have any of those negative effects that we don't want, but more of the, you know, the positive benefits to one, their pain and also to improve their efficacy of breathing, as you quite rightly said, Alex. And we can also at the same time consider obviously other analgesia. We've got things like IV paracetamol in most ambulance services now. Whilst the benefit of oral versus IV is still debated, I think like in this major trauma patient that we probably want to keep them nil by mouth and not they may not absorb stuff from an oral perspective because of their trauma. So, you know, IV might be a, a better approach in some of these patients. I think that's yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I've seen that debate that's uh, been been quite popular on Twitter at the minute, uh, and it's a definitely it's a really important thing to to discuss. And we probably do overuse IV paracetamol in the ambulance service, but uh, yeah, as you say, this is this is definitely one of those patients. If we're querying rib fractures in these silver trauma patients, then yeah, we should be giving it to them IV w- one because one of the major changes of aging is a slowdown in gastric motilities. I think I forgot to mention this at the start. So these patients do have a a reduction in gastric motility and and thus their ability to absorb medications via the enteral route. But also if they're traumatically injured and we've got a sympathetic response, well, well, part of that is to divert blood away from the uh, gastrointestinal system. So absorption is going to be worse anyway. So yeah, definitely I'd be giving it IV all day. Those are really good points. And yeah, you're absolutely right, Simon. When when I'm talking about being cautious with opiate analgesia, I'm not talking about refraining from providing analgesia. It's just having an awareness of the potential effects that the analgesia that we're giving and the levels of analgesia that we are giving could have. But as I said, the main goal of care when looking at chest wall injury and rib fractures in particular is to ensure that there is adequate analgesia to allow sufficient breathing because we are going to end up with a significantly worse outcome and increased morbidity and mortality if the patient is not able to effectively ventilate. Okay, so let's move on to circulation. And this is a, a little bit of a, a tricky area to to find what to talk about because quite clearly there are a, a vast number of circulatory insults that a patient could have. And and, and we're not going to talk about all of them or do them justice in, in this podcast. For me, the main takeaway point when we think about bleeding and we think about these patients' hemodynamic status is to really, really bear in mind in these patients that the elderly response to trauma is not going to be as obvious in telling us that a patient is shocked. So they've got those physiological changes that I talked about earlier that means not only are their bodies less able to detect a hypovolemic insult but they are also less able to compensate for that so their heart and their blood vessels are are less able to do the compensatory mechanisms that we would expect in a younger person compounding that they may have underlying pathology that worsens that and, and worsens the the damage from even a little bit of hypovolemia but also the medications they're they're on and beta blockers are particularly the ones to have in our mind here the medications that they're on can mask the signs of any compensation to hypovolemic shock 
So we can't rely on changes in, in heart rate or changes in blood pressure in the same way that we might a younger person. I, I guess in regards to blood pressure, one of the things to think about is that the majority of these patients, when they are going about their normal lives, they are more than likely going to be hypertensive. So if you've got a patient that's injured sitting in front of you that has a, a blood pressure of 110 over 80, something like that, that doesn't mean that they're fine. And that doesn't mean that I'd be standing there thinking they're absolutely fine and, and not at risk of bleeding. Because particularly if they normally sit at 140, 150 systolic, we've got to ask why they are sitting on the bed in front of us with a blood pressure of 110. Bearing in mind they're probably in pain and they're probably having some kind of sympathetic response or should be. We, we shouldn't sit back on our, on our laurels just because they've they've got a systolic of 110 hopefully hopefully that doesn't sound too uh too over the top and and you guys agree with that yeah absolutely and you know heart rate and blood pressure therefore are both unreliable indicators of hypoperfusion and potential bleeding so one of the things that we do in hospital is to measure a lactate so a lactate higher than 2.5 in a trauma patient would suggest to us that there is a potential bleeding site somewhere and also that there is a twofold increase in mortality compared to a patient with normal lactate so basically we would really try and look for a source of hemorrhage uh, in any trauma patient with a lactate over 2.5 but obviously point of care lactate testing is available to some hems units but in most places pre-hospitally it's not available so that's not awfully useful for the majority of pre-hospital clinicians listening but um just something to be aware of well, and, and there's a reasonable chance that pre-hospitally their lactate may not have, uh, have, have risen enough to, mm. you, you know, to, to flag it. It's, it's a sign of occult hypoperfusion, isn't it? So yeah, quite absolutely. often these are things that are, are really small bleeds that otherwise go missed the hours or so after the injury, the lactate is, is what flags it up. So an example that, that can be in the literature sometimes is, is a corona mortis injury. This is an anastomosis blood vessel abnormality that's present in a reasonable amount of the, the population that passes just over the pubic rami. So a pubic rami fracture is, is something that doesn't really raise a lot of eyebrows and quite a lot of us, I'm sure, have said, oh, it might not be your hip you've broken. It might just be a little bit of your pelvis called a pubic rami fracture. And, and they're normally non-complicated and, and they'll have you up in a few days. Well, in, in certain numbers of the population, there's, there's uh, an abnormal blood vessel that can pass over this and it can be a really really slow really really small hemorrhage that may not even show up on, on the first ct scan and then there's incidences of these patients being blue lit into into hospital when they're uh, pale tachycardic hypertensive maybe a day after discharge from the ed department so that's that's really the, the the case where lactate comes into play in those occult bleeding circumstances uh, as, as another little check step i guess on the on the topic of of the pelvis or pelvic fractures something that's probably worth bearing in mind for us is that lateral compression fractures are five times more common than anteroposterior compression fractures in the elderly population so the the classic open book pelvis that many of us will have been taught about and 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 uh, been 
been practiced at managing uh, in paramedic school where we immediately reach for the pelvic binder. Uh, so your, your classic example of a biker that's come over the handlebars and, and has had a forward compression injury to their pelvis, uh, they respond reasonably well to a pelvic binder. Elderly patients are more likely to have a lateral compression fracture. So more than likely, I, I guess this is from them falling onto their sides, often from standing height. So they've had a sideways impact. And, and these types of fractures may not respond as well to being bound with a pelvic splint. So that's not me saying don't bind these patients' pelvises if you think they've got a pelvic fracture. It's just bear in mind that it may not be the best treatment for them. So we need to be considering whether or not there's an increase in pain response in these patients and whether or not there's any signs of physiological deterioration that might be caused from us uh, manipulating the pelvis in a less than ideal way. And then finally in circulation is thoughts or consideration about coagulation status. So we need to flag up whether these patients are on anticoagulants. And unless you're in a really forward thinking service that carries vitamin K or, or Beriplex or Octoplex, probably most appropriate for us to do then is to flag that either in the atmosphere or, or at the handover point as, as something that they may want to do in hospital is, is, is give that reversal agent. And again, that's, that's something that they should be picking up, but this is just a, another human factors CRM type thing that that we can pick up on as that patient's first attending clinician as the person that's starting that journey in major trauma care. You, you raise a really good point there, Josh, and something that I think we'll come back to later in that the thought process and the decisions that we make in, in what we do and what we hand over can have quite a dramatic impact on what happens to these patients. So yeah, absolutely. This is definitely a group of patients that we as the pre-hospitalists can make a big difference to. But before we come on to talk about plans and management uh, and where we take these patients, let's just finish off the primary survey. So talking about disability D, we, we've kind of talked a reasonable amount about this. So extradural and subdural hemorrhage are definitely things that need to be on our radar in these patients, particularly if we've got a history of a fluctuating or waxing waning GCS uh, or evidence of that in front of us. They may not have the classic signs of raising intracranial pressure that we would look for in a younger patient. We've talked about immobilization and we need to be a little bit nuanced about this and we need to be asking ourselves the question, what are we trying to achieve and is what we're now doing achieving that? And that may not be strapping them to a yellow plastic board with a hard collar around their neck if, if you still use collars. That might be being a little bit more thoughtful about it and making them comfortable, putting them in a position that is normal for them and supporting them to stay still. Are there any other things that we want to think about under D, guys? I would just add about standard kind of head injury management, sitting the patient up slightly so that they are at more of a 15 to 30 degree angle to reduce pressure, maintaining adequate oxygenation. And obviously, as Alex pointed to earlier, being aware of COPD and those at risk of type 2 respiratory failure. And then there is some consideration about a conservative versus surgical management of head injury in older people. A lot of head injuries um, with bleeds are managed conservatively in older people. But I think that, that that's a case-by-case -case basis and probably can't be made until the patient's had a CT scan. So from my perspective, if, if a patient has a significant head injury that you know you're considering bypassing to a major trauma centre, 
you should probably go ahead and go to that trauma center in case they do want to intervene with surgery. So shall we cover very briefly E then on our on our A to E assessment, which really I think in the context of, of trauma, we're going to be looking at exposure and the environment. So exposure, as we know, in any, any significant trauma or major trauma, we need to expose the patient down to skin. But in a patient who is over 65, there is the potential that they are going to have a reduced muscle mass and are therefore going to lose heat more quickly. So it's very important as in any trauma, but particularly with silver trauma, to bear in mind coagulopathy. As you've already said, as, as we get older, we do suffer from an element of neuronal decline as a result of aging. So we're, we're less able to sense our surroundings. Uh, so we are perhaps less able to detect the cold. We wouldn't have the usual homeostatic response to uh to, to cold or to, to hot so uh we we may need to, to factor that in and pay a bit more attention to the numerical values of the, of the patient's temperature but but equally we need to be considering that these patients may not be able to detect heat from our rewarming blankets or detect pressure from from our cold hardboards so again we we just need to be a little bit nuanced about what we're doing if we're using a rewarming blanket one of those exothermic blankets um, we shouldn't be putting it down to skin first we should have a barrier there but but being particularly uh, cognizant of this in these patients because there's a there's a real risk of burns in this patient group and then finally, before we go on to talk about plans and conveyance decisions, I just wanted to add this in because I think it's an important topic to, to bear in mind and is certainly not really one that would have been high up on my radar without having prepared for this podcast. And, and that's to be aware of elder abuse. So there's evidence out there that suggests 10% of older adults have experienced some form of abuse. And like with lots of these kinds of abuse statistics, that's more than likely only a fraction of the cases that are actually reported or picked up by social services agencies. Patients that suffer trauma as a result of abuse have significantly higher morbidity and premature mortality compared to silver trauma from other causes. And victims of abuse that are suffering trauma are more likely to have severe injuries and more likely to be admitted to an intensive care unit when compared to those as a result of accidental trauma. So again, this isn't an abuse or safeguarding podcast, but I think that's just something that we need to bear in mind and consider in, in the assessment of these patients. Could it be as a result of abuse? And do they need safeguarding referrals? And perhaps something that could be really, really easily missed is is physical abuse or injury secondary to a dementia diagnosis? So, so an example being, uh, say, a husband is diagnosed with dementia and he's in the middle stages of, of, of dementia where they can get quite aggressive and can get quite abusive and, and, and not knowing exactly what they're doing can be physically aggressive with their primary carer, which might be their, their wife or their other half. And it might be that we're attending one of those patients with traumatic injuries. We just need to have a healthy dose of suspicion for things like this and ensure that we're reporting it so that both of them can be supported and get the safeguarding that that very difficult situation requires. So let's move on to our plan and conveyance decisions. So I think uh, one of the first things that we need to talk about and one of the places that we need to start is the major trauma centre versus trauma unit and some of the innate flaws that are in the trauma triage tools with regards to these patients. So Alex, do you want to tell us a little bit about that and and some of the things we can consider when trying to make that decision? Yeah, so people listening are going to be familiar with the major trauma triage tool. 
Now, the problem with this age group in particular is that for, for all of the reasons we've just discussed, they are more vulnerable to major trauma and it is far less likely to get recognized. And one of the reasons for that is the way that the major trauma triage tools are designed. The tools that we use are based on certain physiological parameters and certain patterns of injury, which, you know, as, as we discussed right at the start, are not necessarily as prevalent now as they were due to a lot of different factors, but also are very much less prevalent in this age group. I think we've mentioned several times that people are over 75, the leading cause of trauma is a fall from standing height rather than RTCs, people falling out of aircraft and, you know, any other type of trauma that you, uh, that you might like to mention. And when you, when you look at the contents of the major trauma triage tools, they tend to be very heavily focused around injuries, which are likely to be sustained in those high energy mechanisms. So one thing that we need to bear in mind is that with people over 65, a much lower level of energy can result in major trauma. So if we're just sticking to a major trauma triage tool, we are going to be missing people who are potentially having a major trauma physiological response, even though they haven't quite ticked the boxes on the form. Yeah, so that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? So the major trauma triage tool gets you to the MTC through one of three means. So if they look at mechanism of injury, they will flag concerning mechanisms of injury that are correlated or associated with major trauma or high ISS scores. Failing that, then you move on to the next stage where they look at anatomical injuries or anatomical findings of injury that flag up as, as major trauma. So things like obviously obvious flail segments or, or multiple long bone injuries, open long bone injuries, things like that. And then finally, they will look at physiological findings associated with high ISS. So signs that you're bleeding, severe tachycardias, hypotension or reduced GCS in the context of a head injury. As we've spent this entire podcast saying though, elderly patients and silver trauma patients don't often fall into that criteria. They don't meet the mechanism of injury cutoffs because a lot of these patients are getting injured from falling from standing or what might be termed less impressive mechanisms of injury, so less obviously concerning mechanisms of injury. They often don't have the massive physiological gross open injuries that we associate with someone being really, really sick. And as we've just said, they don't spike the physiological findings to suggest that they're bleeding internally. So the decision of whether or not to bypass these patients to the MTC can be really tricky, can't it? Yeah, I agree with both of those. And I, I think that um, the decision for me is the injury patterns themselves that you're looking for are semi-reliable, but we just need to consider them in lower mechanism traumas and kind of ignore the mechanism of injury component, as you've both said in the in the triage tool, and also ignore most of the physiology component, which you've both kind of covered already. So just having good clinical examination and uh, a low threshold for thinking about silver trauma. And I think actually this is going to increase the percentage of patients that we directly take to an MTC. I think trauma units are becoming more aware of 
silver trauma. I mean, I know my my hospital is a trauma unit, and we have a silver trauma call that can go out. You know, we do identify it, and that still gets the same response as the rest of the hospital. Sometimes the subtle nature of some of these patients can, especially if it's not pre-alerted, can slip through the door. They do often get assessed initially by junior staff because someone hasn't identified the fact that they are actually a significant silver trauma. I think the response when it is identified is is on par and we're getting better at that. And actually, I think we handle silver trauma in these trauma units quite well. And we, we train for that and we drill that quite well. But it is the recognition and, and actually that's why they're missed and why they're seen by juniors because we don't identify them early enough. So, so I think that is the key and that is the challenge, isn't it? It's identification. So what we're not suggesting, and I'm fairly certain if we were, Alex, you and, and lots of your other manager colleagues would have a stroke, is that we bypass all fall from standings in over 65s or over 60s to the major trauma centre. Because if, if you worked where I used to work, that is an over an hour hour and a half road transfer and that's not practical and that is not what the major trauma system is set up for but the key is to think about it and consider it and you don't have to make this decision in isolation something that i've learned over over the last few years of, of doing my job is that you can absolutely have a discussion with the TTL, the, the trauma team leader at these major trauma centres and run cases past them and discuss what your concerns are and, and discuss what your thoughts are and get a little bit of advice and discuss the pros and cons of going to the MTC or going to the TU. So this isn't a decision you have to make on your own, particularly when we are discussing stepping outside of the quote unquote major trauma bypass protocol so that that's definitely something to consider and then definitely something to utilize is is speak to the senior clinician that is going to be receiving your patient at the mtc were you to bypass I'm aware that some trusts have uh, trauma advice lines in place. And now they're a fantastic resource because it gives you direct access to uh, to a very experienced trauma clinician who is able to help you with that decision-making process. I think we should be very clear, though, as, as always, we very much believe that people should be able to speak to specialties and should be able to make these decisions. However, we are aware that certain trusts no longer allow or no longer support staff independently making the decision to transport to a major trauma centre and would prefer that it go through a, a trauma advice line. So just bear all of this in mind, but also you do have to consider um, your own local policies and procedures we've we've all worked in systems as well where the decision to go to a TU or MTC is actually quite a, a big geographical and time undertaking. I'm very aware that there's large proportions of uh, of the country where your local hospital is your MTC and, and the decision to bypass might only be 20, 25 minutes. But you've got to do whatever is the accepted process within your system. But one thing I would say, and, and I think you both agree, is that we really should be advocating for these patients. And if we feel strongly about something, then we should really be imploring the other clinicians to uh, to, to help pull in the, in the right direction and, and get them the care that you as their attending clinician thinks they need. 
sometimes it might be entirely appropriate to go to the TU because the patient is is that undifferentiated and and we we don't have enough information or we don't have enough clinical suspicion to make the bypass decision to go to the MTC. And and I guess it comes back to highlighting the risk of injury and and, and recognizing these patients being injured in that if we're going to a TU, it doesn't mean that we have to go and wait in the ambulance crew. We can absolutely admit these patients during our handover, say that we're concerned that it's silver trauma and that we feel the patient needs an emergency CT scan to uh, to differentiate where they are injured and, and whether or not there is occult bleeding. Part of our job as, as the first attending clinician, part of our job as, as pre-hospitalists is sometimes actioning that treatment pathway because the decision that we make pre-hospitally can have huge effects on uh, on on the patient's timeline and whether or not they they uh, get seen in in a timely fashion and whether their injuries get found you know if if we decide not to admit these patients they might be seen hours later by a very junior clinician that realistically may have less emergency experience than we do who may not recognize the the, the potential for significant injury I think just to reassure people, you know, this happens in EDs a lot. We do a lot of pan traumas, especially on older patients with with that we're worried about their trauma. And often we do find no significant concerning or life-threatening injuries. We've made that decision based upon a full pan trauma CT. So it's absolutely fine to not be sure and to, to come in. You know, it's easy for us once we've got a couple of paragraph long ct report from a consultant radiologist that tells us exactly where the injury and things that are going on are and that's really difficult to establish pre-hospitally so i don't think anyone should feel bad whether they get the decision right or wrong as long as we are trying to do what's best for the patient and considering the, the right place for the patient right well we talked about an awful lot of information there so let's summarize One of the biggest threats to the older population is serious injury from seemingly insignificant mechanisms. Starting the ball rolling with regards to looking for serious injury starts with us as the pre-hospitalist. We need to remember that every organ system of the older patient is more vulnerable to trauma. They often have less protection from injury, are more brittle and have a reduced ability to compensate for that injury. Now, having listened to this podcast, it might seem that a lot of the things that kill elderly people in silver trauma are occult and hidden, and are often only found on CT imaging with the aid of blood work. And there is a bit of truth to that. It would be easy to conclude then that there isn't anything for us to do in this patient group, and really the real improvements are to be done in hospital. But that would be where you're wrong. Time and recognition are the key things in this group. And that starts with the pre-hospital team. The course you start this patient on will be the one that makes the difference. We need to recognise these patients as a high-risk group and ensure that our assessment is as detailed as we can make it to look for any signs of serious injury. We need to remember that these patients often won't present to us as dramatically unwell and need to bear in mind that the textbook picture of a poorly trauma patient is biased towards the young. Much of the major trauma bypass tool thresholds to initiate bypass do not serve elderly patients well who get seriously hurt from small mechanisms of injury 
aren't able to mount significant responses with heart rate and have increased mortality despite higher blood pressures when compared to young patients. So we need to have a lower threshold for pre-alerting these patients and activating the hospital teams, be that trauma unit or major trauma centre, to look for injury in these patient groups. But that's all for this month. As always, you'll be able to find the article on our website, generalbroadcast.org.uk. And that'll be up shortly after the release of this podcast, where you can find links and references to more information to further understand this topic. As well as that, you can find links to the articles and back catalogue of all of the podcasts that we've released. Thanks very much for joining us and join us again next month for a brand new topic.